Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of demystifying science for the public and for our students as well. We uh, separate sense from nonsense. And uh, every Sunday afternoon, I chat with you here for an hour, and I invite your questions. Uh, you can call us at 514-790-0800. You can also text us at five zero zero eight hundred. And I have a question for you. Not only do I have a question for you, but I also have a prize. Uh, it's a copy of my uh, most recent book, A Grain of Salt, uh, which, is, which is all about uh, separating sense from pseudoscience in the world of food. And we're all interested, of course, in what we eat. Uh, we plan our meals, we eat our meals, then we talk about what we ate, we talk about what we should have eaten, uh, we talk about what we will eat, uh, then we cook, then it's time to eat again, then we discuss what we just ate. And uh, much of our life revolves around eating and talking about food. There's a lot of nonsense out there as well, and I've tried to separate the sense from the nonsense in a grain of salt. Okay, well, here's the question for you. Winner gets a copy of that book. If you were dining with Queen Victoria, uh, you might get up from the table hungry, even though a seven-course meal was served. Why would that be? Why would some people still be hungry dining with Queen Victoria even though a seven-course meal was served? If you think you have the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. Let us for a moment go back to the ancient Phoenician city of Tyre, which today would be found on the coast of Lebanon. And a terrible smell permeated the city at that time. Why was that the case? Well, very interesting story. The most prized dye in ancient Rome was Tyrian purple, and that was extracted from a species of mollusk in the Mediterranean. The dye was very hard to come by, and uh, it was very, very expensive. And processing it released a putrid smell that permeated the, the city. As early as the 17th century BC, Phoenicians had discovered that extracts of three types of sea snails, Murex brandaris, Thais hemastoma, and Murex trunculus, could be converted into dyes with shades ranging from reddish to bluish purple. Sea snails, of course, do not produce colored compounds to satisfy human vanity. So why do they produce them? They do so to ward off predators. The compounds that are so prized for their ability to dye fabrics have flavors that are bitter, and predators learn to leave the snails alone. The three most noteworthy compounds the snails produce are dibromo-indigo, monobromo-indigo, and indigo. And it is the relative ratio of these that determines the color of the dye that can be produced. Phoenician dyers mastered the art of using the three types of snails to produce a variety of purple hues. Since huge numbers of snails were required to produce a small amount of dye, Tyrian purple was more expensive than gold. Given that only the very rich could afford purple fabrics, the wearing of such apparel became a status symbol. 
This was particularly the case in ancient Rome, with purple togas being restricted to the emperor and victorious generals. Julius Caesar wore a purple toga, and legend has it that Cleopatra's ship had sails dyed with Tyrian purple. And that would have used up a lot of snails. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Eastern Empire, eventually known as the Byzantine Empire, continued to revere purple. Emperor Justinian I was routinely clad in purple, and women of royal lineage gave birth in rooms decorated with purple fabric, giving rise to the expression, born into purple. It meant that you were born rich. After about the 7th century, historical references to Tyrian purple faded, and by all accounts, the Middle Ages were characterized by drab apparel. It was in 1858 that interest in the ancient dye was rekindled when French zoologist Henri de la Castutier, on a trip to Spain, watched in amazement as a fisherman smeared his shirt with the slimy exudate of a snail. Well, that left a stain, which at first was yellow, and then slowly turned to a beautiful purple. His curiosity aroused, Lazas Dutier rediscovered the three mollusks that were capable of producing purple to blue dyes. He also suggested that one of these, Murex truculus, was the source of the legendary blue dye referred to in the Old Testament. Let me give you this passage from the Old Testament. You can find it in the book of Numbers. God said to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they shall make for themselves tzitzit on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall place upon the tzitzit of each corner a thread of teklet that they shall see and remember all of the commandments of God. Okay, well... For those of you who are not biblical scholars, I think this requires a bit of a interpretation. What are tzitzit? These are the especially knotted ritual fringes, sort of tassels, and they're worn on garments uh, in antiquity by all Israelites and today by observant Jews. Why? Because they serve as a constant reminder to live according to the laws of God. According to the biblical passage, one thread on each corner was to be colored with teklet. That was a blue dye. There's no mention of the source of the dye in the Bible, and the only information available comes from some esoteric references in the Talmud. So what is the Talmud? It's a compilation of discussions and debates by Jewish scholars about the Torah, that is the Hebrew Bible. The Talmud was completed around the 6th century. And uh, it suggests that the source of Techlet was a snail known as Helazon. And it was described as having a shell and produced a dye with a color similar to the sky or the sea. But here's the problem. There are no historical records of any snail that can produce a blue dye that resembles the color of the sky. However, a chance discovery by Israeli dye chemist Otto Elsner may have solved the mystery. While researching methods that may have been used by ancient dyers, he was working with extracts of murex trunculus. Because of the smell involved, he worked near an open window. As expected, after extracting the snail's glands, he produced the purple dye. But one day, brilliant sunshine came through the window, 
and when Elsner lifted his wad of dyed wool from the solution, he was stunned to see it turn from purple to a brilliant blue. As further research would show, energy from the sun's ultraviolet rays broke the bonds between carbon and bromine atoms in bromo-indigo, and that yielded pure indigo, the same blue color available from the indigo plant. Ancient dyers working in the sunshine of the Middle East could well have noted this reaction and used it to produce techlet, the biblical blue. Baruch Sturman, an Israeli scientist who is also a scholar of Jewish history, has taken an interest in developing modern techniques to produce the blue dye he believes is techlet from snails. And he now gives demonstrations of the method at his workshop to visitors and uh, turns out cotton fibers that once again observant Jews can use as a component of the fringes on their garments, reminding them of the ever-presence of God. The reason I tell you this story is because uh, I was just at one of his demonstrations in Israel. And uh, uh, Mr. Sturman, uh, actually it's Dr. Sturman, he has a degree in physics, of all things, uh, very, very good demonstration of exactly how these snails can produce the blue color. And that was right up my alley, of course, because I'm very interested in the chemistry of colors. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show, CJ 800. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. For those of you in Montreal, my uh, monthly talk at the uh, Eleanor London Public Library in Coates and Luke is not tomorrow. It's going to be next Monday, Monday the 13th. Okay, I had asked a question. The question was, how come that you could be dining at Queen Victoria's table and they would serve a seven-course meal and you could still be hungry? And I offered a prize, my most recent book, A Grain of Salt. Uh, let's see if Mark has the answer to that. Hi, Mark. How are you, Dr. Joe? Good. Uh, Happy New Year's. Same to you. Uh, okay, I, I don't have internet, so I didn't, guess, uh, I didn't che- cheat or whatever. I'm pretty sure that... Seven-course meal, they enjoyed it very much, but after each course, they vomited it up. Uh, they may well have, but no, that's not the that's, that's not the answer. Oh well, okay. Okay, all right, thanks. Uh, let's try Cindy. Hi, Cindy. Cindy. It's Sonia. Oh, Sonia. Okay, yeah, Sonia. Hi. 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 Um, I think it's because Queen Victoria was served first, and once she was done eating the rest of the plates were removed. So even if you weren't done eating, they would remove it. Bingo. That is exactly the the story. And Queen Victoria was a very fast eater. <laughs> and uh, so um, what happened was that as soon as uh, you know she was finished her d- dish, it was whisked away, and so were the dishes from everyone else. So there were constant complaints of people being left hungry after dining with Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, that... Uh, piece of etiquette is still practiced today. Okay. So if you are ever invited to <laughs> dine with Queen Elizabeth, uh, you will only be able to eat as long as she's eating. Okay. But uh, I've heard that uh, the Queen is very considerate and eats slowly to make sure that all of her guests uh, can finish their portions. Good to know. Okay. So stay on the line, please, and they will get the uh, details and I will, okay. I will mail you the uh, copy of my book. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so Sonia is the winner of uh, A Grain of Salt, and uh, the book is all about food, separating uh, sense from uh, nonsense. 
All right. Uh, if you have any science-related questions, you can, of course, uh, uh, bring them up at uh, 514-790-0800. You can also text comments to uh, 514-800. Okay. As you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, separating uh, sense from uh, nonsense. So let me talk a little bit of nonsense here. Uh, ask yourself this question. What is the likelihood that a former broadcast executive suffering from cancer wakes up in the middle of the night with an idea, rushes to the kitchen, takes apart some household appliances, and builds a radio frequency generator that can cure cancer? Later discovers that its instrument can also be used to burn salt water for energy. My guess is that the likelihood of this happening is very small. But this is just what John Kenzius of Sanibel Island of Florida uh, managed to do, or at least so he said. A news clip of his remarkable achievement produced by a local television station uh, has been prominently featured on the Internet, eliciting lots of commentary. Kansius, uh, with a background in radio and physics, claims that one night while lying in bed, presumably pondering his fate, he had a breakthrough idea. Why not introduce tiny particles of gold into the body, have these concentrate in cancerous tissue, and use radio waves to heat up the gold, which will then heat the surrounding tissue and destroy the cancer cells? It is certainly true that nanoparticles of gold can be heated by radio waves to temperatures that will kill cells. Mr. Kansius does not explain why his gold particles would concentrate in cancer cells rather than any other cell. But more importantly, this idea is not at all new. Numerous researchers are investigating tumor destruction by heating the appropriate tissues using various methods. Even the gold radio frequency idea has been explored. Of course, the researchers do not use just tiny particles of gold. The ones they use have gone through an elaborate process of being bound to antibodies that have receptors on cancer cells. This has some potential. Maybe Kansius has reinvented the wheel, but I think uh, his wheel is square. Now, what about the claim of using his radio frequency generator to burn salt water? The video of the process is interesting. We see a sample of salt water being placed in a test tube, the tube being exposed to radio waves from his generator, and a flame being spontaneously produced at the top of the tube. Looks like the water is indeed burning. Actually, what is burning is hydrogen gas produced from the breakdown of water. I must admit that I was surprised by seeing this because the only method I was f familiar with to decompose water was electrolysis. This classic experiment involves placing a couple of electrodes into water, passing electrical current between them to generate hydrogen and oxygen. I'm puzzled by how focusing radio waves on a saltwater sample can do this, but apparently it can. And as I found out by doing a patent search, even this idea isn't novel. A U.S. patent has been granted for using certain radio frequencies to generate hydrogen from water. I'm not sure what is happening here chemically, but I'm sure of one thing. John Kansius has not invented a new source of energy. The energy it takes to generate the radio waves is more than he gets back from burning the hydrogen he produces. So, while there is some interesting science going on here, the implication in that circulating video that you can all watch that will be running cars that burn salt water is sheer nonsense. 
as I suspect, is his cancer cure device. Of course, there are many, many such devices that are hawked on the Internet because when you have a disease like cancer, which is so difficult to cure, the quacks, of course, come out of the woodwork uh, offering... uh, all kinds of herbal remedies and, and uh, radio frequency generators, magic wands of all sorts to cure the disease. Uh, of course, the uh, suggestion that the thousands and thousands and thousands of MDs and PhDs who toil around the clock all over the world trying to find cures for cancer have all missed some simple uh, discovery. How likely is that? I would, I would suggest it's not very likely. And this notion of running a car on salt water uh, is absolute nonsense. Uh, The laws of thermodynamics cannot be contravened. Uh, Energy can be uh, uh, changed from one form to the other, uh, but uh, creating it out of nothing is is not possible. Uh, Energy, of course, we define it as the, the ability to do work. And running a car, flying an airplane, all of this requires work, and it requires the input of energy. And the energy has to come from somewhere. Uh, There is no free lunch. You cannot take water and uh, uh, all of a sudden put salt in it and uh, create uh, energy. Uh, of course, there are all kinds of stories that the petroleum companies are are trying to hide the fact that uh, you can, in fact, run a car on water. But uh, this is just ridiculous. Cars can be run on electricity. They can be lo- run on hydrogen. Uh, they can be run, of course, on gasoline. But uh, they cannot be run uh, on water. Okay, we're going to take a break, listen to the news, and we'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Let me uh, hit the lines and go to Milad. Hey, Milad. Yes. Uh, Please, uh, Dr. Joe, uh, tell me if the following ingredients are uh, uh, quick and uh, conducive to sleep uh, as a formula for sleep. (laughs) For sleeping. Okay. The uh, egg whites, uh, two tablespoons of uh, ground up pumpkin seeds, two kiwis, and one banana. I've never heard of such a concoction, and I would be very suspicious that this would be. they all Use, contain uh, tryptophan. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, you can take tryptophan itself and it doesn't do anything in terms of sleep. Whoa. So, uh, you know, the argument is that tryptophan is the is the body's precursor to serotonin. And serotonin has a calming and sleep-inducing effect. But the, the fact is that uh, uh, the body doesn't convert tryptophan to serotonin in any a significant amount to cause you sleep. I mean, if if you're looking for possibilities, uh, melatonin, especially the one that uh, you spray under the tongue, uh, that can work. Uh, there's some minor evidence for valerian uh, extracts, uh, but uh, if you're really looking for um, 
something that induces sleep, uh, which has been probably studied, there are some prescription drugs like that. And uh, Ambien is the one that I think is probably most commonly used, as with any as with any other drug, of course, uh, uh, you know there are possible side effects. You always have to weigh right. one against uh, against the other. But uh, melatonin spray or drops under the tongue, um, I think, uh, is what I would try first. Uh, I've used the spray and I found that uh, it works. It, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it works all the time, but it. Um, it does help. Uh, there's also an antihistamine, diphenhydramine, uh, which is sold. Uh, most antihistamines have sleep-inducing side effects, uh-huh. and uh, the side effect can also be marketed. So things like NyQuil, for example, will have diphenhydramine, which is you know uh, can have sleep-inducing effect. But uh, the concoction that you you suggested, yeah. uh, I would not. Uh, <laughs> I would not bet on it. On the other hand, you know, I, I cannot say that, uh, you know, it can't work. No one has ever tested that, to, to my knowledge. You would need a properly controlled double-blind study to, you know, to come up with that. Okay. So, okay? Thank you. Yep, thank you. <laughs> All right. So remember, you can uh, uh, ask your questions, 514-790-0800, or you can uh, also text us at uh, 514-800. <clears throat> Where would you go to see the largest illuminated advertising sign in the world? You think you'd go to Times Square, Piccadilly Circus? No. You would have to stop over in Leverkusen, Germany. And there you'd be amazed by the 120-meter-high, 51-meter-diameter sign. You know what it is? It's an aspirin tablet, and it stands atop the Bayer Company uh, headquarters. The... 1,710 light bulbs that make up the famous Bayer cross on the giant tablet are meant to call attention to the shining history of the Bayer company. But you know what? There's a reason to take a somewhat dim view of some aspects of that history. There's no question that Bayer has a very colorful past, beginning appropriately enough with synthetic dyes, its first commercial product. Friedrich Bayer was a paint and dye salesman before partnering with master dyer Johann Friedrich Westcott to establish a factory in 1863, hoping to get in on the mushrooming synthetic dye business. Historically, dyes were isolated from plant sources, such as indigo, and we talked earlier in the show about indigo, and matter, and of course also from the sea snails, as I suggested, and insects like the kermes or the cochineal. All that changed with uh, the discovery of synthetic dyes in 1856, the so-called coal tar dyes. A rainbow of synthetic colors soon appeared with German companies such as Bayer taking the lead. Competition was fierce, forcing the company to diversify. Uh, If dyes could be produced synthetically in the laboratory, why not pharmaceutical products? Why not indeed? By 1838, Hext had produced antipyrene, the first fever and pain-reducing drug, and Bayer waded into the waters with phenacetine in 1888. Then in 1898 came Bayer's big breakthrough with aspirin, making, marking the beginning of a long string of spectacular achievements, as well as disturbing controversies. Okay, let's uh, talk about this. First, a bit of history. Contrary to many popular accounts, aspirin is not produced from the bark of the willow tree. The starting material for the chemical synthesis of aspirin is benzene, derived from petroleum. 
This is converted to phenol, which in turn is converted to salicylic acid, which then is changed into acetosalicylic acid, or ASA. That is what we know as aspirin. While aspirin is not made from willow bark, there is a connection. The bark of the white willow, as well as several other plants, such as the myrtle, contain various compounds that have a chemical similarity to aspirin, in which, like aspirin, have an effect on pain, fever, inflammation, and blood clotting. The Ebers papyrus, Egyptian medical text dating back to the 16th century BC, describes the use of the bark of the willow tree, as well as myrtle, to treat pain, fever, and uh, conditions that we would describe as inflammatory. In the 5th century BC, Hippocrates recommended willow bark preparations to reduce fever and ease the pain of childbirth. Recipes for various willow extracts made their way into pharmacopoeias around the world, but it wasn't until the 18th century that the first scientific study of willow bark was carried out. Credit for that study uh, goes to an English clergyman, Edward Stone. Common belief at the time was that cures for diseases were to be found near the cause of the disease. This was known as the doctrine of signatures and a quasi-religious bent. The notion was that God had given humans clues about finding remedies for diseases. Since fevers were more common around brackish waters, that's where stones searched for a clue. Well, I got to break into that story. With some news, I tell you that uh, Canada has just won the World Junior Championships, defeating the Russians 4-3. to And uh, it's the first time in several years. Uh, certainly last year we lost to Finland. Uh, but uh, And this year in the preliminary round, we lost to Russia 6 nothing. But uh, Canada came back now to win the gold medal 4-3. to Okay, that's the good news. All right, let me get back to the um, uh, story uh, of Stone and his uh, story about uh, you know why he was looking for clues to to uh, fever in in marshlands. Uh, of course, the reason that fevers were to be found in in marshes was because such water served as a breeding ground for mosquitoes and they transmitted malaria, a connection that wasn't known at the time, and Stone tasted the bark of the willow tree and found it bitter, reminiscent of the taste of cinchona bark at the time, the only effective treatment for malaria. Uh, And cinchona was later found to contain quinine, and uh, it was the bitter taste of this compound that suggested to Stone that may, may have discovered another malaria cure. He collected and powdered some willow bark, which he then went on to systematically test on people who complained of fever and aches. While it did relieve symptoms, it did not, like quinine, cure the disease. Still, willow bark did gain popularity as an inexpensive substitute for cinchona bark. Okay, now I told you that uh, in addition to such interesting stories about the history of of aspirin, uh, the Bayer Company also has somewhat of a dark side. takes us uh, into the 1930s, and uh, I'm going to tell you that part of the story uh, about you know some uh, some of the uh, sort of not so pleasant uh, uh, historical aspects of of the Bayer Company. But we're going to take a break. Uh, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use the Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let me continue with my story about the history of the Bayer Company. 
The 19th century ushered in the modern era of chemistry with its powerful tools of isolating, identifying, and synthesizing compounds. One of the main areas of interest was isolation of physiologically active substances from natural materials. By the middle of the century, salicin and salicylic acid had been isolated from willow bark and were widely marketed for the reduction of pain, fever, and inflammation. Attempts were also made to produce synthetic derivatives of the compounds found in willow bark, and one of these was acetylsalicylic acid, synthesized by Charles Frederick Gerhardt in 1853. Gerhardt did not investigate the medical properties of his novel compound. It remained for Felix Hoffman, a chemist working for the Bayer Company, to put the final punctuation mark on the drug that would become known as aspirin. One of the problems with natural salicylates was that they commonly caused gastric distress. Hoffman's father apparently suffered from arthritis and got relief from natural salicylates, but at the expense of gastric pain. Hoffman thought that perhaps a synthetic derivative of these salicylates might retain the therapeutic properties and eliminate the gastric problems. He searched the literature and came upon Gerhardt's synthesis of acetylsalicylic acid, which he used to produce enough material for testing. The compound relieved fever, pain, and acted as an anti-inflammatory. And while it did not completely eliminate gastric problems, it did reduce them relative to salicin and salicylic acid. The Bayer Company coined the term aspirin from the Latin a for from and spearsauer, the German for salicylic acid. That term derived from spiria ulmaria, the botanical name for meadowsweet, which was rich in salicylic acid. This account of the discovery of aspirin repeated in numerous articles and texts was first publicized by Bayer in 1934, a year after the Nazis came to power. Arthur Eichengrun, who was Hoffman's supervisor at the time of the discovery, later claimed that the research was actually his idea and that Hoffman just followed the directions and didn't even know why he was asked to synthesize the compound. Eichengrun alleged that Hoffman's story was released to ensure that a Jewish scientist would not be credited with the discovery. Bayer has denied this claim, but medicinal chemist Dr. Walter Sneeder, after researching the issue extensively, has concluded that Eichengrun's account was credible and that the Nazi propaganda machine was instrumental in ethnic cleansing of aspirin's history. Why did Eichengrun wait until 1949 to publish his account? Certainly, Nazi Germany was no place to make claims about Jewish discoveries. Although Eichengrun's story only received attention after the war, he had originally described the events in a letter to Bayer he somehow managed to write from a concentration camp where he had been interned by the Nazis at the age of 76. In the letter, now in the company's archives, he asked for Bayer's help. The letter was ignored, as is the whole controversy in the Bayer History Fact Sheet, which is now on the company's website. During the Second World War, Bayer merged with other chemical companies to form IG Farben Industry. Not only did this company produce the notorious Zyklon B used in the gas chambers, as well as the nerve gas sarin, it used slave labor in its factories and played a large role in the horrific drug experiments on human subjects in Auschwitz. 
The history fact sheet describes these events thus. As Germany's most important chemical company, IG Fiber Industry, became involved in events during the Third Reich. Yeah, I would say they did become involved. Curiously, Bayer's marketing of heroin from 1898 to 1913 also fails to appear in its official history. This compound was also synthesized by Hoffman at virtually the same time as aspirin. He was trying to make codeine from morphine when he hit upon heroin, which had actually been first synthesized back in 1874 by the British chemist Charles Romley Alder Wright. Byers' tests showed that subjects taking this drug during testing felt heroic and brave, hence the name. Heroin turned out to be an effective cough suppressant in great demand at the time when tuberculosis was running rampant. It was widely marketed by Bayer as non-addictive, although that turned out not to be the case. No great surprise here, since in the body, heroin is quickly converted to morphine. Whether the company actually knew this while it was promoting heroin as non-addictive is still a matter of debate. Also missing from Bayer's fact sheet is any mention of Bayacol, the anti-cholesterol drug that was withdrawn in 2001 because it allegedly caused kidney failure and death in 52 patients. Of course, there have also been discoveries that have significantly enhanced our lives. The first antimicrobial drug, sulfonamide, was discovered by Bayer's Gerhard Domag in 1932. Otto Bayer invented polyurethane in 1937. Hermann Schnell introduced polycarbonate plastics in 1953. And then, of course, there's aspirin. Today, Bayer researchers are working on new pharmaceuticals, novel methods of crop protection, and ways to use carbon dioxide in plastic production. Indeed, they're justifying the company's current slogan, science for a better life. And that goes for birds too. For a period in the spring and fall each year, the lights on the giant Bayer Cross sign are switched off at night to ensure that migrating birds can reach their breeding grounds. And in a move towards greenness, the 1,710 conventional 40-watt light bulbs have been replaced by innovative light-emitting diodes, LEDs, resulting in 80% saving in energy. So yes, there are skeletons in buyer's closet, as in those of most big corporations, and of course, most people's. Shedding light into the dark nooks is important, since where we go in the future depends on what we have learned from the past. But we also have to ensure that as we illuminate the past, we do not cast an unfair shadow on the present. Prior to the Second World War, Germany was at the forefront of science with people like Bunsen, Wuller, and von Bayer making huge contributions. Unfortunately, during the war, the science took an evil turn. How did this happen? What was the role of the German chemical companies in the Holocaust? How close were the Nazis to develop the atom, atom, atomic bomb? Uh, well, uh, we don't have clear answers to that. Science is uh, not white or black. It is many shades of gray. And so is the history of the buyer company. But at least now you know a little bit about um, 
uh, how aspirin came to be is actually a far more interesting and far more convoluted story than it's usually told. And, uh, of course, there are these uh, rather unsavory um, aspects of the buyer company as well. Well, we are just about running out of uh, time here. Uh, we did have some interesting discussions today. I told you all about uh, snails and how Tyrian purple was uh, was extracted. Uh, we learned a little bit about the uh, uh, chemistry of sleeping concoctions uh, and uh, how valerian root and melatonin may be of some use, although Ambien, a prescription drug, is uh, uh, certainly a better way to go if someone has real sleeping problems. And then we went all through this history of uh, aspirin and delved into uh, the buyer company's uh, somewhat unsavory past. But that is it. We have run smack out of time. We'll be back with you same time same station next week until then i'm joe schwartz hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right